This episode is brought to you by Loading Bar. Based in three locations, Stoke Newington and Peckham in London and Brighton on the South Coast, Loading offers video game aficionados somewhere to drink, relax and play. Visitors can expect a welcoming space full of free-to-play games, the latest consoles, fresh ground coffee, signature cocktails and video game-themed live events. Visit loading.bar for opening times and more information. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games a bit like songs often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is an American food critic and voice actor. Born in Chicago in the late 70s, he began performing in public as a young child after he joined the chorus for a production of the opera Carmen, appearing alongside the tenor Placido Domingo. He began voicing commercials at the age of seven, before moving to California, hoping to take on character roles. There, he joked with a friend that his ideal role would be to voice the pirate Guybrush Threepwood in the Monkey Island series of video games. Two months later, he was cast as the character in The Curse of Monkey Island. He has since reprised the role for each of the Monkey Island sequels, as well as providing cameos in Rare's beloved pirate game Sea of Thieves, 
six Star Wars games and two Metal Gear Solids. Alongside this work, my guest has worked as the dining critic for the Arizona Republic. Welcome, Dominic Armato. Hi there. Hi. How are you? I'm doing all right. You are in, just uh, describe for the listeners your setup. Where are you sitting right now? I am currently surrounded by clothing that is mostly my wife's, although a little bit is mine, (laughs) uh, in our little walk-in closet here where I've managed to put together a little makeshift studio with the far too expensive microphone that I bought for myself 15 years ago when I told myself, surely I'll be working from home nonstop for the next couple of decades. Uh, Hasn't quite worked out that way but um but it has come in handy for yeah. times such as now so it looks like it's gonna get warm in there at some point so um well have you got some water the upside <laughs> the upside and downside i guess to living in phoenix is that we all have very good air conditioning right, which, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Up, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> short-term good long-term eh, we'll see but but at least it makes it tolerable here so so i i'd like to get straight into it with you John. sure so where were you when you found out that lucasarts was looking for someone to voice uh, three put. I was in the waiting room for my agent in Beverly Hills when I was living in Los Angeles. I'd gone out there because um, I desperately wanted to do some character work. At the time, basically everything out of Chicago was commercial, all the ad agencies in Chicago. So I'd done <laughs> just metric crap tons of, of uh, commercial work when I was a, a kid and a teenager. But I really wanted to do character work. And uh, I was I was sitting in the uh, uh, the waiting room as, you know, the little reception desk and a sofa where the voice actors would wait, you know, take their turn to walk into the studio and read whatever copy we had for the day so i go to the desk and i pick up my copy and i'm starting to flip through it and i see uh i see the curse of monkey island and this drawing of guybrush threepwood and i completely lost my mind because as you said it had literally been <laughs> no exaggeration it had literally been about two months prior that i was talking to a friend on the phone back home and he was like you know what would your what would your dream role be and i said well for interactive it's like it would be guybrush threepwood for the monkey island series but that's never going to happen. You know, Ron left LucasArts. They haven't done one of those games in five or six years. It's, it'll never happen. But it sure would be fun. So, huh. so yeah, that uh, it was it was a moment. What um, a great think, moment. Uh, yeah, I went walking around the office. I'm telling myself, I'm like kind of talking to myself, psyching into it like, I will be will be Guybrush Threepwood. And all the agents are looking at me like, are, are you okay there? Who? What? Walking with a limp, like you've got a peg leg. <laughs> oh, just something, like something, anything. And and, and, and just like the, the pre- that was like some of the most intense six to seven minutes of pressure I've ever had in my entire life. Because, you know, for, for voiceover, you don't, there's not, there's not like a lot of prep usually. It's not like for some reason, at least it was at the time, you know, for on camera, you know, you get your sides a day ahead of time and you can work on it and think about it and all that kind of stuff. Voiceover is much more casual. Voiceover is just like, oh, hey, here's the copy. We'll be in the booth in like three minutes, you know? Yeah, so tell me, what, what did you have to read for it? What what have they given you? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. I mean, I'm sure it was some, some little bits from the script. Uh, you know, whenever you get those audition packets, it's always... Uh, at least it used to be. I understand it's a, a you know with everyone being concerned about leaks and all. I understand it's a lot different now. But back at the t- back at the time, it was you know you get a a character description, you get maybe a little summary of what the project was, what the game was about. Right. Um, you'd have you know a few short selections from two or three different scenes, you know, with a little bit of range. Um, I don't recall what those scenes were for Curse. And then uh, and then the thing that was always so important to me, although it mattered less in this case, is they always give you a, a drawing as well, right. um, just so you can see the character, which for me was always the most useful thing of all right, right. um but uh but in this case it was like i don't i don't need i don't need the background on this i got this i got this so so it was just a just just the pressure of like i need to get this part i will get this part and i have six minutes to figure out how i'm going to do it so. yeah right so you've got that six minutes did you have a moment where you were like am i going to do a voice for this i mean 
Or were you like, very much so? Yeah, would yeah, you? no, no, I did. It, yeah, because 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 here's the thing, because I you know now I've got this, and it, my dream role is right in front of me, and I got you know five or six minutes to figure out how I'm going to do this, and so I start going through my head like, oh no, I gotta I gotta actually voice this thing now, so I'm trying to think, okay, I gotta I do this, I'm like messing with some voices in my head, and then I just kind of stop for a second, and you have sort of that that moment of Zen calmness, and so I thought, well. I've been playing these games for years. I've, I've played and replayed them for quite a long time now. And, you know, I think this is pretty typical for a lot of people in a situation like that. When, you've, when you're when you the protagonist and it's very conversational, there's a lot of dialogue, you kind of put yourself in there, you know, which, <laughs> is, which is what I always did. You know, I always kind of hurt myself. And I thought to myself, well, it, it, it worked okay for me for the past, you know, seven or eight years, whatever it was. Maybe, maybe I'll sound good to everybody else. So I decided to just kind of... You know, I mean, it's still character work, but I decided just to kind of not mess with any sort of goofy voice or anything like that, but just yeah. vocally play it very straight and not going to do a British accent or anything like no, that. No, no, no. Yeah, exactly. And just <laughs> and just hit the character and and as much as possible, just try to get myself in there to make it nice and easy and 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 feel natural. You know, anything anything that mm. anything that I because you know part of it part of what I always loved about the characters, you know, and, and I'm sure everyone does, you know, I'm not, I'm not unique in this respect, but you know, we relate to him somehow. Right. Mm. So it's like, okay, what aspects of his personality kind of match up with mine? And then how can I kind of, you know, crank those up to 11 and really highlight the bits where, where we're similar. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I decided to approach it. The upside being that it was very, very natural. And I, you know, I knew the character and I knew the story and everything. So, so it, it, it worked out okay. So I guess, uh, you know, putting myself in your shoes, you do that tape recording and then you're, then you've got a couple of weeks or whatever to wait and hear if you've got it or not. Um, yeah. Do you, where were you when you got the call that you'd, you'd been given the job? So it, that would have been after there was, there was a callback in between a couple of weeks later, there was a callback, which is actually in the studio uh, or it, it, it rented studio in Los Angeles, you know, with, with LucasArts being up in uh, the Bay area and the director, Darrow O'Farrell came down and at that point they'd whittled it down to a small number of people. Um, I don't know how many precisely. And he was doing, you know, sort of their, their final callback. So I went in, there was a little bit more script, you know, a few more scenes, a little extra to do. He wanted to see how you take direction, all that kind of thing. How do you take direction? Uh, I, I like to, I hope, hopefully well, I think. I like to think so. I try to be precise, you know. I There are, there are some, I don't know, there's some actors who are very much like, you know, I'm going to do this my way. And there are some actors, I, I'm that way. It's like, tell me what you want. You know, I'm, I'm, you're paying me. I'm here. I mean, you know, if you want me to kind of mess around with it, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can. But, but, but if you, if there's something specific you want, tell me, tell me what that is. Yeah. Or if what I'm doing sucks, just tell me it sucks. You don't have to, you know, this isn't. I'm not an LA guy. You don't have to, you know, worry yeah. about my ego or anything like that. It's all, it's all right. So, so I know I read that all for him and I got to the end of the audition. It was just about time to step out. And I like kind of had that moment where it's like, ah, oh, should I say it? Should I? And I was like, Hey, uh, uh, Hey, just so you're aware, I, I wanted to let you know, you know, I, I really know these games and I was trying not to make it sound like a fanboy thing. I was trying to come at it from a place of like, Oh, I, I have this background knowledge. You know, I played them a lot. I know them really well. I know all the characters. I mean, I know all this stuff and to the extent that that may or may not be useful, I just, I just wanted to let you know that you know I, I got this and I, I'd, I'd really love to, to, to do this part. And and they told me after the fact that it was it was really close between me and one other fellow. I have no idea who it was, and that that ended up kind of being one of their one of their main tiebreakers. Oh, nice. Was worth saying then. Yeah, I know exactly. Right, it's like all those all those years of playing video games finally paying <laughs> off. But also, like, I can understand why you were a bit like, oh, do I say this or not? Because you you want to sound, so you just want to be professional and you don't want to exactly. be like, give yeah. it to me, because I know. It's like, how do, how do I how do I get across that it's going to be, you're not going to have to explain a lot and you're not going to have to, like, 
tell me all this stuff that I'm going to make it really easy for you without sounding like some sort of raving fanboy lunatic, you know? So yeah, yeah. I, I, I just tried to kind of quietly and, you know, calmly just get it in there, you know? So it seems to have worked out okay. Did you celebrate? Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I was basically on my own at that point. I, I didn't, I, I hadn't been out in LA very long. I didn't really have any friends or family out there, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, uh, I had myself a good little, good little <laughs> evening there. Got on the phone, called a bunch of people. Yeah, no, it was, it was very cool. Oh, lovely. And then you, you reprised the, the role last year. Um, how did it feel returning to, to those boots after some time away? It always, you know, it always feels so natural. It used to be, you know, the first couple of times that I came back after a while, there's a little bit of you know, a little bit of anxiety just over like, you know, do I still, do I still have this? I can't screw it up. I got to make sure I do it as well as I did last time, you know, and, <laughs> and trying to go back and listen to a lot. And when I was living in LA, you know, go ride the Pirates of the Caribbean a few times in a row and just, you know, make sure I got it all in my head. And, uh, uh but, but now, I mean, it's been long enough now, you know, this, this, this guy has been with me a lot longer than he hasn't for me at this point. So, um, so no, at this point it's just totally natural. And, and, and they tell me it's a little weird because, you know, as as you can tell at this point, you know, vocally we're very similar, but you know, they're they're different characters, and 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 they say it's kind of weird how it's like the voice doesn't change, but it's like you know the character turns on. You know, there was someone someone described it to me once. He said it was so weird. Who I can't remember who it was, but someone who I was hanging out with and chatting, and then at some point they asked me to do a guybrush thing, and 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 this fellow told me the story that he had heard. It was like something with Marilyn Monroe, like some. Some reporter was uh, interviewing Marilyn Monroe over lunch, and and he was like, you know, I'm a little, I'm almost a little disappointed. You know, I, I didn't really expect you to be like this. And and she says, I'm like, oh, oh, you mean you wanted to meet her? And then she just does like some little subtle change or something, and bam, then it's then it's the character, you know, as opposed to as opposed to the person. <laughs> well, can you give us a rendition of uh, Happy Birthday, Mr. President, as Guybrush? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I didn't just get Guybrush. Guybrush is not that much of a singer, as you may have as you may have gathered. Um, I'm not sure anyone's going to be seduced by uh, by Guybrush's singing voice, but uh, but uh, but he has his, he has his moments, right? Yeah, a little a little, little bit of charm here and there. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Well, Dom. Okay, so the premise of the podcast is I've asked you to pick the five video games you want to put on your perfect fictional video game machine. Yes, uh, you, you picked five lovely games. That I think people are going to be excited to hear about. So, why don't you tell us about your your first title? Uh, which, uh, interestingly, you picked the Sega CD version. I did. What is the game and, and why do you love it? The, the game is, in fact, this, the, the first one, the obvious one, would be The Secret of Monkey Island for Sega CD because that is how I first played it, as, as, as janky as that old console was. Oh, buddy, did I love it at the time. So I had, so I, I had asked for a Sega CD for Christmas. I was a teenager, a younger teenager, I think. I don't recall exactly. And I got my Sega CD. I was very excited about that. And I had played on the PC Loom a couple of years before. I was not a big fan of the uh, LucasArts stuff at the time. I just didn't know about it. It wasn't on my radar. Um, but I was looking through Sega CD titles I could get. Now I've got my new game console and I'm looking through titles I can buy, and I see The Secret of Monkey Island from LucasArts. It's like, oh, okay, well, I thought Loom was pretty cool, and 
this looks like it might be interesting and and I'll play this and that was that was the hook. I mean, that was that was where it went for me when I was when I was a teenager and I played Secret of Monkey Island on Sega CD. And and amusingly, I did not even realize like my brain wiped out just how janky <laughs> it was. When I was at uh last year, we did I went to PAX to do some promotional stuff for for ta- for, for a return the release and they had, you know, their huge video game library packs where you can go down and they just have like rooms filled with all of the consoles you could possibly want to try and they have this massive library and you can check out old games and play them uh-huh. and i was like i have not played this on sega cd since i was a teenager oh and i i rented it <laughs> well rented it you know picked it up at the counter and i popped it in and i start playing it and it's like oh my god these load times are ridiculous it's like in between every second or third line there's like 15 seconds of loading i can't it is a miracle that I even got through this game. I can't believe I played it in that format. I I, I guess I liked it even more than I thought I did because it's basically intolerable on that system. Yeah, I mean, the Sega CD was just like before the PlayStation, before the Saturn. It's really slightly too early for disc yeah. media games, isn't it? So they were, like you exactly. say, really long load times. and But they, they could have yeah. incredible music because it was CD-based. Which, which works great for Monkey Island, you know, since yeah. that's such, uh, you know, such a big part of it. The music is, I mean, it is for any game, of course, but but especially so mm. for for a mm. series like Monkey Island. You know, I mean, that first, you know, from that first musical wash of the first game, it's like you're you're just in. So, <laughs> so I think pr- probably everyone listening to this has played a Monkey Island, but let's let's imagine that a couple haven't. How would you how how do you explain gotcha. the game when someone says, oh, you know, what voice acting have you done, and they've not heard of Monkey Island? What's your elevator pitch? I tell them that it is a very tongue-in-cheek piratey, anachronistic piratey adventure that um, is really story and character based. And the hook beyond that, beyond the fact that it's a great story, is just that it's really funny mm-hmm. and entertaining. And it's not, you know, it doesn't take itself too mm-hmm. seriously. And that's that's kind of, and that was what made it stand out at the time too. I mean, there's certainly a lot more good humor in games these days. You know, you have a lot of better writers working on games now as opposed to you know, just grabbing some coder down the hall to to grab a few lines. Not 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 knocking the coders who did their very best at writing. I I you know I, we appreciate your efforts, but uh, but uh, but at the time it really stood out. It was unusual. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. very unusual in how 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 solid the story was, how good those characters were, and just how funny the freaking game mm-hmm. was. And not in sort of that, you know, a lot of video games of that era. I feel like there was a lot of kind of you know dumb sophomoreish humor. But I mean, this was actually. A very witty game yeah proper and, and jokes that was yeah. very very hard to come by at the time yeah so so that's that's why it stood out for me that's always yeah. how i sell it it's like you know if nothing else it's like if you're not laughing in the first few minutes then you know you can move on it's fine and it's, it's within this uh i suppose they used to call them point and click adventure games where you have like an inventory of some items yep. and basically you solve puzzles by you know putting items that don't normally go together together to solve some something Tis, yeah, it's all it's all it's all dialogue and using your brain and puzzles and there's nothing. And that was the other that was another thing that of course made it stand out. And I still tell people today is is you know there are a lot of people. So usually if I talk to gamers, they've heard of Monkey Island. Maybe they haven't played it, but you know everyone knows Monkey Island if you're into into games. Um, it's more so when there are people who really don't play games that I'm trying and they're nervous, of course, because like oh I can't play video games. So that's like no 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 this is this is different. There's no, there's no twitch here. There's no reflex. There's no speed. It's like, it's nothing like that. It's just, you walk around and it looks beautiful and it sounds beautiful and you talk to people and, and you use your brain. You can take as much time as you want to figure out, you know, little quirky puzzles. So, 
So it's uh, it's uh, it's a good. Uh, I like to think it's a good gateway <laughs> drug for non gamers, but uh, but maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part. I mean, I don't know. When you were a kid, were you able to to get all the way through the game? Because it's not always the easiest to to solve everything, is it? I was. I I I mean, I remember you'd hit those points where you just start banging your head against the wall. Um, but I, and I, and, and, and frankly, looking back, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that any of us got through them. I don't know how, but, but no, I, I absolutely did. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I remember hitting a couple of points where, you know, you get kind of stumped and frustrated and kind of come back at it later and then you finally get it. Um, and you can move on. I mean, I think all that existed at that point was Yoda's help desk. And, uh, and I don't think I ever, I think I, I don't think I ever called Yoda's help desk. I think I managed to avoid that. <laughs> Um, just as a just as a point of pride, it'd be funny if the callers had to answer in Yoda speak with their, all the all the sentences back to front, just to really confuse you with the point and click yeah. solutions. No, and it's funny, and in a little bit of hilarious uh, uh, circular, you know, things coming full circle here. Uh, Chris Brown, who was the voice director for Return to Monkey Island last year, and of course directs tons of other great interactive stuff. She used to work the help desk. No way. Uh, that was where she started out when she said, "Yeah, when she started to look, I believe." It was, it was, if not her first, it was one of her first positions at, uh, at LucasArts was, uh, was manning the phones That's at Yoda's incredible. help desk. Oh, what a, what a lovely, uh, what a lovely bit of narrative, putting a bow on it. Right. <laughs> Just, yeah, exactly. Just perfect. Right. So you, you, um, Tommy, you grew up in, in Illinois. What kind of, what kind of place was it for, for people who don't live there? For, well, for me, I, I mostly, I mean, I was born like right on the edge of the city, lived there when I was like a little infant. I mostly grew up in the North suburbs. <clears throat> which is pretty, you know, pretty posh, pretty ritzy. Um, we, my, my dad had this secret plan where, you know, we couldn't really afford the neighborhood. So he'd, he'd start, he was a salesman. So he'd start cold calling people whose houses had been on the market for way too long and say, Hey, we're a nice family. Why don't you shut it down? Rent it us for a year. We'll take care of it, clean it up a little bit. And then next year you can put it back on the market. It'll be a fresh listing. So, uh, so the, the upside was we got to live in these really nice neighborhoods. The downside is we had to pack up and move the house every single year. So, Right. Um, so, so that was where I mostly grew up. I went to I went to middle school uh, down in the city. I went to high school out in the western suburbs at Nerd School. So, you know, in and around Chicago in the suburbs is is where I grew up. And then uh, after doing a couple of years of college uh, at DePaul, that's when I that's when I split for for LA. Don't do this, kids. <laughs> Get a little frustrated with college. It was not going well, and I was like, you know what? I know I want to do the voiceover anyway. It's like I bet yeah, I'll just just jump in over there now and. and yeah, jump in and strike while I can. So that that much seems to have worked out okay. Because I yeah. would have been somebody else if I'd spent just one more year in college. Would have been somebody else. Well, tell us about how you... So, well, hang on. Before we get into the VO stuff, I want to hear about this, uh, you you appearing in this opera. Because you were tremendously young, weren't you? Six or seven years old. How did... How did that come about? Well, I was just, I was one of those, I, I was a kid, I just really wanted to do, I wanted to be a performer. Stage kid. Yeah, which is weird to me now because I don't, have i don't feel like this drive to do that now i'm not like oh i'm an i'm an actor i never you know i don't i don't feel that way now but when i was a kid i totally wanted to right. I was like yeah i want to be on stage i want to be on tv and you know do commercials and movies and that stuff and my and my parents were uh kind enough to indulge that and i think i think what they did is uh certainly at first they may have steered me towards things that were also a little nice for them my father um was just a tremendous uh opera fan um, always has been. So, uh, I, you know, I, I was, I was into acting. I was, I was singing and they suggested, you know, Hey, you know, there's children's chorus auditions, Carmen, they need a lot of kids for Carmen. So, you know, let's, uh, let's take you down and, and you can audition. And I did, and I got it. And, and, and then my dad, it was funny because, you know, for, for Carmen, it's, uh, 
it's a tricky one with the children's chorus because it's a huge children's chorus to begin with. And then the kids are on stage like right at the beginning of Act One, and then they're on right at the end of Act Four. And there's almost four hours in between. And they have to keep all these kids cooped up backstage every night for almost four hours. So they needed a lot of chaperones. And they asked my dad if he would be a chaperone. Oh, nice. And he said, I will do this on one condition. I said, what's that? They said, when we get to the fourth act, this particular, I, I'm not familiar enough with the opera to remember anymore, but when we get to this one particular bit in the fourth act where, you know, Domingo sings his big thing, he's like, I'm going to disappear for about 10 minutes. And he said, as long as I can do that, I will come chaperone. So he did. Every night he would take the elevator down and he would stand right at the edge of the sight lines off stage, maybe about 15 feet from Domingo every night as he would sing, you know, this you know, one of my father's favorite parts at the end of Carmen. So that was, uh, that was, that would, that made it all worth it. For yeah, me. right. Cool. That's a good payoff for, uh, for the parent. Cause like a lot of parents of six year olds, they're not, they're not getting to do that. Are they? It's more like the, uh, no, the local, the local play or something like that than school play. Yeah. Well, I mean, being stage parents, I think is generally a lot more mundane than that. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it turned out to be for them. Uh, you know, as the years went on, but uh, but like I say, they were they were really good enough to indulge me. And so. then, how did you, you got your first VO job? Like a, a year after that, or something? How did how did that come about? So I was with uh, the agency I was with in Chicago. I had you know signed up with them to do uh, commercial, you know, film that kind of thing, uh, on camera work, and uh, which is what I was interested in. Mm-hmm. And they had this little teeny tiny voiceover division, which was really just one woman, Sharon Woodridge, who was you know just it. She was one of the queens of the voiceover scene in Chicago forever. One day she kind of walks up to me, she says, do you want to do some voiceover? I'm like, I, what, what is that? And, <laughs> you know, she explains a little bit to me and my mother's there. We're talking about it. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll try it. So, so she sent me out to do a commercial audition. It was for uh, Cherry Switzer, a commercial for Cherry Switzer. What's it? What is and, that? Uh, it's like a, it's like a licorice, uh, like red licorice, kind of like, kind of like twi- similar to Twizzlers, you know, I'm not okay. sure if it was a regional candy or, or just a, uh, Less popular version of the same, but uh, but yeah. So they sent me on the voiceover audition for that. Just a simple announcer bit. Do you remember your line, Cherry Switzer? Now with cherry juice, they're so fruity, chewy, and delicious. That <laughs> that's the announcer part. There was a whole jingle right, there right, right. the two that was done by some other kid, but that was like the little three seconds of announcer. Everyone's right pausing the, the podcast so they can go off and get that. <laughs> it's there. It, I'd love to see it again. It's out there somewhere. It was an animated commercial, but yeah, and I booked the first one they sent me on, so it just kind of went from there. Um, so, you know, I, and that was the main thing I was, I could speak clearly and I could take direction, which when you're a kid is basically it. If you can speak clearly and take direction, you can make bank doing voiceover when you're a little kid. Oh, that's so, so cool. Right. We better come to your, your second game. Um, oh yes. Tell us about this one. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the game? When did you first encounter it? So the second game on my list, I believe what we put in there was Thief 2, Thief the Dark Project 2. This is, I don't, I don't remember even how I came to it. I think at that point I was probably, you know, I mean, I, I got more into PC gaming when I, when I got my first PC going mm. to college, you know, um, I had a couple of friends in high school that had computers and I always, uh, very much envied theirs. And, uh, then I got my own going to college and, uh, and then when I went off to Los Angeles, I had my own PC that was always broken and I was always fixing it. And that was how I learned everything about PCs. But, you know, but I got into gaming and then there was sort of that sweet spot in the mid to late 90s where there were a lot of, there was a lot of interesting first person stuff going on post. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was. You know, and, and, and I remember 
I don't remember what turned me on to Thief. I don't remember what it was. It's possible I saw it at E3 because I was living in LA and I was going to E3 every year. I was kind of oh, you were? sneaking in as someone who was industry. I mean, I wasn't going to work or anything, but but you know, I was I was industry adjacent, of course, and yeah. uh, and I was kind of that I really wanted to go. And and yeah, that was back when E3 was just this tremendous, I mean, just tremendous, mind blowing show. So um, I may have even seen it there. I may have seen I may have seen a demo at E3 in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I was really, I was, I was really impressed by what I saw. They were talking about the 3D sound, and I was so interested in Finish. that. So, so I got the game, and it got its hooks in me. Both the first one and then the second one, of course. The second thief was just, you know, just like sort of like a cleaner, fuller iteration of the first. But for me, it was that two things about it. The first was the immersiveness, and I, which I know it seems crazy now that I'm thinking about. I, you know, you go back and you play it now. It is so freaking low poly it's like i can't believe this felt immersive but it did it felt tremendously immersive for the time and and i'd never felt so immersed in a game that was the big thing for me and then the second thing about it was that there was no rush you know i mean i enjoyed you know i played doom and whatever and i enjoyed in quake and i enjoyed all those but but i loved the deliberate pace of the game and i loved how like I, I was the guy who would sneak into the rafters of the bank and like <laughs> sit there for half an hour watching all of the guards and planning exactly <laughs> what I was going to do and how I was going to do it. You know, I mean, I took my time with those things. I would I would take maybe six or seven hours. Oh, my gosh. Really? I mean, serious. That, that was why I enjoyed it, because I could. And because I, I that that may have been where my more completionist tendencies got to be a problem but yeah just every little thing and take my time and move flawlessly and silently i mean in the real world it would have been noon by the time i left <laughs> as opposed to still in the yeah. middle of the night but that was but that that was it for me and I, I just i spent so much time playing that game and and it's really both in terms of the aesthetics and in terms of always kind of seeking that immersive yeah. experience that that's really i've i've been chasing that i've been chasing that feeling for yeah it's since. a really well it's firstly a very well regarded game but uh but also one that's been very influential i think lots of kind of had a couple of yeah. game designers on here and they've picked uh picked this game as well so yeah it's just oh okay yeah I think, that doesn't surprise yeah me. it's because it's just got this you know it's not very complex is it in terms of the amount of the interactive palette of the things that you can do is quite limited no. but but the you know all of the brilliance comes from the way that this f- few number of systems all in- intersect with each other and allow these yep. opportunities. Yeah, wonderful. Game. Absolutely. Except for the bone hoard. I hate the bone hoard. I still hate the bone hoard. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
Uf. So, so you, you talked a little bit earlier about how you moved to LA. How did that go down with your family? You, you said that you left a year before you graduated college. Uh, two, two in fact. I, went to, I did two years of college and then I bailed. They were, they were, they were into it because I think they saw that. You know, I went to I went to a real hardcore nerd school and I and a high for high school and I was thinking about what you what you mean by that? Oh, it was it was it's a place in Illinois called the uh, called Illinois Math and Science Academy and it was like the statewide magnet for you know, basically to take uh, smart kids and turn them into engineers. And, uh, you know, half the kids became engineers and half the kids were like, screw that, I'm not going to be an engineer. And they'd rebel and do something right. completely different. Which were you? <laughs> yeah, I know you, you, you think. I thought about it, though. I thought about being a physicist. So then so then college was just kind of, it was it was a weird transition for me. It just, it wasn't working out well. And I think they knew it wasn't working out well. And and the voiceover had always been good. It had been good to me and it seemed like a great way to make a living. So they were, you know, they were on board. And 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 mm-hmm. and, and I had already been living away at school for three years. So it wasn't like... Oh, was I boarding school? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I went I went away to boarding school when I was 13. So, you know, and then I did a couple of years of college. I mean, when I moved out to LA, I, I started college at 16 and I moved out to LA at 18. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like I hadn't already wow. been basically taking care of myself for five years. So... So it wasn't, it was just further away. You know, I mean, I think the only anxiety anybody had was that it would take longer to get to me if there were a problem, but, uh, but, uh, it wasn't like I hadn't shown that I could take care of myself at that point. So, so yeah. How do you reflect on, on that? Like now the, I don't know, like the way you're describing it now, it's like, oh, I matured really quickly and I got to do this stuff earlier than other people because, you know, I'd moved out like 13, but that can also be quite onerous on a child, I think, can't it, to, to move out? It, well, if, I mean, for a lot, it is. Yeah. I mean, I remember the, even the high school I went to, there are a lot of kids who uh, uh, people would say wash out. I don't like that term at all because it's, you know, it's not it's not reasonable to expect a kid to be ready to live on their own at 13 or 14. You know what I mean? So I don't <laughs> I don't like the negative connotation that, uh, you know, because but, you know, there were always some kids after the first month or two, it was like, this, this just isn't right. This just isn't working out. And, you know, and they'd head back home and that's fine. But, um, but, but that was never, that was never a problem for me. I was pretty, my, my dad was always very, very big on independence in general and, you know, get out there and take care of yourself and go disappear for a few hours. And, you know, I mean, there are all of those, all the, all the Gen X tropes now, which are a little, maybe a little overstated, but, uh, but it was that era to a certain extent. And, uh, my, my parents embraced that as well. So. What did your dad sell, by the way? You said he was a salesman. Tin cans. Decorative tin tins. cans. Yeah. For, uh, yeah, the t- ten tended to be higher end stuff like for, you know, DVDs and, uh, candles and cookies and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, right, and I spent okay. a number of years helping out with the business too. So I'm technically fourth generation tin manufacturer as well, although my my involvement is uh, a little less significant than it used to be, but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, old family business, four generations. So, so uh, where, where are you living then when you get to LA at 18 and you've got, I guess, uh, you've got an agent, but, um, I was living in lovely Burbank, California. I was in the shadow of the Warner Brothers water tower. Oh, right. And, uh, we just felt, yeah, no, we, you know, my folks wanted me to just be in a nice, you know, kind of burbish safe area. And we found a nice, uh, you know, a nice clean apartment complex and, uh, and uh, my my mother met the property manager who was this this just wonderful wonderful woman um, who had immigrated I think from Iran and she was just she was just a beautiful woman and, and my mother's like oh I trust her so settlers that like any any worries my mother had just like you got mother number two here you're gonna be oh fine. nice so <laughs> so you know I moved in there and I lived in I lived in Burbank for for almost the whole time that uh, that I was in Los Angeles and you know three days a week I'd hop in the car and drive over from the valley down to Beverly Hills and do my auditions and head back home. So, 
Nice. Yeah, and mostly living on my own. I didn't make friends until further down that uh, that road. The first couple of years, they were pretty pretty lonely. But you know, I had I had Guybrush to keep me company. I mean, this is this is part <laughs> of it. I mean, this is I lived I lived on my computer those first couple of years. So yeah, that's how you could spend six hours on a single thief level. I guess absolutely. I <laughs> I had time. I had a little bit of time on my hands. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I would like to have that time again. <laughs> so you start working on these like. Um, Star Wars projects as well, which I guess came through LucasArts and that connection. How did... No, I was just going to say, yeah, that, that's basically all. You know, after I'd worked with Dara Farrell on the couple of the first couple of monkey games that I did, you know, I was still there and he was still there and they always needed voices for stormtroopers and TIE fighter pilots and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, whenever he needed a few random voices, he's one of the folks I would call in to do some screams and yells and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so tell me about working on the Metal Gear. So you worked on Metal Gear 2, Metal I Gear did. Solid 2, I should say. How yeah. did that come about? Uh, just a typical audition, you know, same as same as any other, go to the, go to the office, get the copy. Um, uh, I actually, I read originally, I read to be Raiden uh-huh. uh, in Metal Gear Solid 2. I did not get that part, sadly, too, but they cast me as one of the, you know, they had sort of like this big gang VO session with it was seven or eight dudes and it was like all the soldiery stuffs and all the all screaming the and the yelling and, and all the barks and all the yeah, yeah, yeah. and and uh, and uh, and uh, Phil Lamar was there which was a lot of fun and I was like I know that guy <laughs> um, which yeah I was I was still at the point it was still fairly early on so it was still really cool so like oh, I get to work with this really cool guy so <laughs> um, and I I believe if memory serves me I believe Kojima was there. Like he was kind of like in the studio, he was like way in the back, you know, just kind of yeah. tapping away on his laptop quietly as the session was going on. Like, <laughs> in shadow, you could just see the light, the light of his cigarette <laughs> occasionally glowing. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was not clear to me at that point just how nuts the dude is, but, but, but he was there. So, so I can say, I, I believe I can say that I, maybe I made it up in my head, but I'm pretty sure he was there. I think I can say I was in his presence. <laughs> well, you were in his game, so you can definitely say that. Exactly. Amazing. Right, let's uh, let's come to your third game then, Dom, which is from 2005, a, a rhythm action game, as they call them. What's this one? This would be Guitar Hero. Which was the first of the guitar sims that I felt became totally immersive. This is like a, this is like an impossible choice for me between three, right? But but we're but we're going with Guitar Hero because that was sort of where all the magic first came together. Mm-hmm. So you're big into music games? I well yes, um, but especially the guitar sims. I mean, I still have I still have my setup, and at the time um, I was going to. My father would travel to China a lot for work, and I would tag along sometimes, and we'd stop over in Tokyo. So I was bringing games and consoles and stuff back from Japan as well. So, so when I started getting into the music stuff, I had access to a lot of things that were not easy to access at the time. So the first one that I got into actually was, was I was super into Guitar Freaks already, and I don't know if anybody remembers Guitar Freaks, but mm. that was like K- Konami's original, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, but my, the, the the precursor, like that was the first guitar sim, and I, I found it in a Vegas arcade of all places, and I spent the entire I spent the entire weekend in Vegas in the arcade playing a Japanese guitar sim, and then and then again yeah, trips to Japan, I got brought I bought Playstations in Japan expressly for the purpose of playing this game, and I brought back the little plastic guitars, and the guys in customs are looking at me funny and. All my friends are like, what What are you doing? What is this game? I don't understand this. I'd say, you guys, this is the greatest thing ever. 
So I'm doing that for two or three years and then Guitar Hero hits and Guitar Hero becomes this massive phenomenon and everyone's doing it instead of karaoke and everyone wants to play Guitar Hero. And I'm like, I told you this was the coolest thing ever and no one listened to me. And now you're all into this. So I guess like Guitar Freaks didn't have the licensed music, did it? It was all, it was like Konami originals and then no, it Guitar Hero comes along and it's cheese that everyone knows. Yeah. It was really corny. I mean, Guitar Freaks was very, very corny. But but I like to think that I saw the potential in where this was going. You know, <laughs> I, I the appeal the appeal was there. So so I felt I felt I, so Guitar Hero comes out and I felt simultaneously vindicated and really annoyed that everybody who'd been giving me shit for the past you know three years was now totally on board with how cool this was. All right, fine. So but that but it was different too because when because because there you've got at least the first one you know they they had to do their own versions of it for the yeah. first Guitar Hero as I recall, of the music. They didn't have the actual masters. But it was still, you know, they were having, they had very good reproductions of... Yeah, close cover versions. Exactly, yeah. of, of really popular songs. And that was one, you know, adding the fourth and fifth buttons and, and it just got, it got sophisticated enough that it became, it started to become less like playing a game and more like feeling that you were creating the music. And that was the thing... That was the appeal for me there, because like if you got to a level of difficulty with Guitar Hero, you would hit this magical point where all of a sudden you're not playing a game and hitting buttons on a controller. It would it would feel like you're actually drawing the music out of this little plastic mm-hmm. guitar in your hands. And you know that's not the case, but it got good enough that the illusion was there. Yeah. And and so it was almost like it was like a shortcut. I feel kind of bad for the people who spent, you know, like 20 years trying to master the guitar to get that feeling. And then here I'll jump in and I'll play this game for about six months. And <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's not the same. I'm sure it's not. But, you know, but but that 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 feeling of I am of, of like I'm making this mm-hmm. music, you know, even though you're kind of not really. But but it feels that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, every night for hours, for hours. And in fact, when uh, when Guitar Hero 2 came out. Um, I, I kind of had a head start on everybody because of Guitar Freaks. So I was, you know, this is, I mean, now any of the people who play that game just obliterate me now. But but at the time, you know, I had a head start. So I was like, they, they announced the launch parties. They did launch parties in a number of cities for Guitar Hero 2. <clears throat> and I thought, well, I'm pretty good at this. So so one night I was I was I was living with my my wife and, and we, we weren't married yet. But, but you know, I'm, I'm getting up one night and I'm kind of getting packed up. I said, I'm going to go out for a little bit. She says, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go in a video game tournament. She says, Okay, fine. So, and she jokes that she sat on the sofa for three or four hours watching TV, and about three or four hours later, I come walk back in the door holding all the swag. She's like, "Did you?" I'm like, "Yeah, I told you I was going to win." <laughs> so, so yeah, I, 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 I played that. I played that. What's uh, which song did you win with? Uh, oh, what was the winner? It was, uh, I think it was War Pigs. That makes sense. I think I think was the song. Was that what it was? I think yeah. so. Ozzy. I remember Ozzy. Yeah, because I remember it was weird that they chose that for a final song too, because it's pretty slow paced one you know but it wasn't there's not a lot of squeakly needly going on there <laughs> so uh so it was really just a matter of like don't make any mistakes and like i remember about i remember in that last one yeah like three quarters of the way through it's like neck and neck and the other finalists you know he like drops a note and i'm like i got this <laughs> this is mine now i just like get through the last you know got last quarter of the song error free and there's nothing he can do to catch me so <laughs> That's good. That's a very vivid scene. I can see that becoming a, a Jack Black movie. <laughs> yeah. Although it ended in tragedy because they let us do an encore together. And uh, of course, because it was an encore, we decided to play Freebird and, and we botched it and, and, and lost. <laughs> so it was like the most anticlimactic ending possible. Incredible. 
So let's. Uh, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about your your dual career as a as a restaurant critic or, or food critic. Which would you describe yourself as, restaurant or food critic? Uh, I I mean I whatever. I, these days I tend not to say restaurant critic because just because there are so many different ways we get sure. great food mm. nowadays. You know, we, between pop ups and 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 food trucks and all that kind of stuff. You know, restaurant feels a little more. Confining. I think officially at both papers, I've been dining, dining critic. critic. the official thing, but dining critic, food that's critic, whatever. It's all, you know, it's all the same. It's all semantics. Yeah, that sounds ele- elevated. We'll go with that. It does sound, it does. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe that's even worse. I don't know. Is it dining? I mean, I, but this is the thing. I, this is my thing, though. I can say, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it is equally, it is equally noble to dine at a fantastic food truck than it is to be at, you know, some, some, some Michelin star joint. I, I feel very, very strongly. Oh, absolutely. That, so. Yeah. So how'd you, how'd you get that job? Uh, uh, by accident, uh, really fell backward into it. I, I just, it kind of became a hobby around, uh, I mean, so I've been doing all the traveling with my, with my dad's business and, and, uh, we were going to Asia a lot. Um, and then we were also going to Europe two or three times a year, um, for various, you know, conferences and meetings and production and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, so we were going to some really great restaurants and I, found that I was starting to forget some of the details and it was driving me completionist. It was driving me nuts. So I started keeping a journal of places that we went to that I, I really loved and, you know, just some notes on the dishes, that kind of thing. And, and my, my now wife at the time suggested, you know, Hey, uh, you know, my, my folks would love to read about these places we're going. She says, why don't you, this is right when everyone, when the blog blogs were hitting everything, we had a blog, right? 2005. So why don't you start a blog? So so I did, which was skill at do, and I kind of did that as a hobby for a number of years. I got very very active in uh, community food <laughs> discussion boards, you know, with you know the hardcore food geeks who were all going out and trading notes. And you know, this was at a time also when you know the papers, the mainstream food media was pretty much just paying attention to expensive places, upscale places. You know, what at the time were the James Beard type restaurants? You know, well financed. You know, c- very creative, forward thinking cuisine. You know. And, and just sort of those, those neighborhood gems, you know, and all the, the, all the fantastic immigrant restaurants, you know, none of those were, those got almost no coverage. Or if they did, it was that two-tiered system where, you know, we save stars for the white people restaurants and then we use forks if you're not, you know what I mean? So, so, so we were, we were, I was part of the crowd that was adamant that that really needed to change. So, so I, I got very, very big into that. And then when I moved out to Phoenix, uh, we moved out here for my wife's work. Um, I really, really missed that crowd back in Chicago. So I kind of tried to recreate it here. Um, and I started up my own community discussion site here. And we were kind of doing the similar thing, you know, just, you know, trying to really dig and fill in those holes that we felt were were being missed by the uh, by the mainstream media. And then when the uh, uh, the newspaper critic, the main the main newspaper here, the 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 Arizona Republic for the the statewide paper, um when the critic retired, he had been the critic here for, I don't know, like 20 something years, maybe. I mean, it had been a long time. And, uh, and they, they came looking for me, weirdly enough, after about three or four months of doing their search, I got a call from them. They're like, Hey, you know, we're looking for a dining critic. Are you interested? And I was like, no, not Why'd you say no? Well, because, because, you know, I, as I explained it to them, it was sort of like, well, first of all, I told myself, I can't be anonymous. I said, because of the whole monkey island thing, that ship has sailed. So I can't do that. I have no chance of being anonymous. And I said, and beyond that, I just, I'm not into like the whole, 
old school dining critic, you know, the authoritative voice from on high, you know, I mean, I was, I was very much coming at it from right. a community angle, you know, we're all out here exploring together and trading notes and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and they were like, well, can we talk about it? I'm like, I'm right, sure of course. we can talk about it. So I got on the phone with them and I told them all this and they said, well, actually that's great. They said, because we are not looking for a traditional dining critic. We want someone who is not anonymous. We want someone who uh, is going to act more like a community leader and can run some events and really try to engage with people and, 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 you know, make this more of a community thing and act almost like an advocate for, for Arizona dining oh, outside perfect. of the state. And we want someone who can really reimagine the role in a modern way. And I was like, okay, that I can do that I'm interested in. So, so that's what got me. And, and of course, you know, it's a major newspaper and it's a big ship and you can only you know, turn that ship so quickly, but, uh, but it was a good experience. I think for both of us, I think I, I, I pushed them places. I think they might not have otherwise gone and they reined in some of my maybe more, uh, uh crazy, uh, ideas, uh, for yeah. better or worse. And, uh, and, uh, it ended up being, a, it ended up being, yeah, I mean, the experience. way that you outlined sort of what your vision was for it back in, you know, the 2005, when you're writing that blog, that's so, you know, so forward thinking. It's what everything's about now when it comes to food, isn't it? If you think of Ugly Delicious and all those shows, that seems to be the, the approach is like, you know, the yeah. communities, what's the heritage of this food? The, where's it come from? What's its story? All of that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, historically, historically, dining criticism was very much service journalism. It was very much just, you know, food, service, atmosphere. How, you know, how is it? Is it worth your dollar? You know, that kind of thing. And, and I think, you know, I, I, you know, I, I was far from alone in being among, like I said, you know, I was, I was in good company, uh, you know, in, in the mid aughts, you know, people who were, who, who really felt that things needed to change. And, and that was, that was percolating up from a lot of places. And I was, I don't want to say that I was ahead of the curve. It's just that I was one of the first ones who had happened to be in the right place at the right time and had an opportunity to break through that, you know, that sort of that whole movement. Good. So, but it's interesting too, because, you know, that crowd that I used to hang out with, there was a board called LTH Forum in Chicago. Um, you know, they, so many of them, the, the folks who I, they've all gone on, not all, but I mean, a lot of them have gone on to, to, to food journalism really? and that's their, their professionals now, you know, which, which has created a bit of an identity crisis for the old site because, you know, back in the day, it was like, you know, fight against the mainstream <laughs> media. It's like, now it's like, we won. <laughs> yes. Now what do we do? <laughs> now you're the old guard. That's what always happens. It's the circle of life. That's how it goes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You, so, so I'm sure there's somebody else who's percolating right now and is just, <laughs> I'm doing it all wrong and they're going to depose me and that'll be the end of things. As, as um, restauranters and people making food in trucks or wherever, but in, in establishments came to know who you were, did you get re recognized when you turned up? And do you ever- Oh, absolutely. Do you, did you feel like you got special treatment and anything like that? 100%. Absolutely. See, and this is a very, this is a very controversial thing too, because- when I started as a non-anonymous critic, that was, at the time, that was very rare. There were only maybe, I can't really think of like two others at the time nationally for major papers who had, who had done that. And they had dropped the veil as well. There was nobody who had just started out that <laughs> way that I'm aware of. In fact, there was a, a food journalism uh, conference. I couldn't make it, unfortunately, but they, but my first year, they asked me to come out and participate in a panel because there were, there were not, there were none. And it was like, we want to talk about this whole thing. It's yeah. highly controversial. A lot of people made the mistake of, of thinking that I, I was of the opinion that this was unnecessary or it didn't mean anything or, you know, like it, it like I didn't understand what the whole point of an anonymity was. And it's like, no, I, right. I agree. 
Ideally, we should all be completely anonymous. That is what would be best. It's just, it's impossible. It can't, it just can't happen anymore. And, and I have met with, I have met with critics who would swear up and down that nobody in town knows who they are. And it's like, you know, I've talked to at least a dozen chefs who know exactly who you are. And they were passing your photo <laughs> around before that, before, you know, between booths at the festival that you went to a couple months ago. You know, it's like, it's like, stop, stop fooling yourselves. I know you would like to think this, but that's not the case. So rather than this kabuki dance where we pretend that we're anonymous and we're not, it's like, just accept it for what it is. It's not possible anymore. It just isn't. It's too bad because mm. it's better if we are, but it's better to be upfront with it and deal with it and work the best we can within those constraints than to keep pretending that, that is, we're something we're not. I still have my tricks, though. I can always, I can always get some dishes that uh, they didn't know were prepared <laughs> for me, but, you know, it's, that's top-secret information. I can't okay. talk about how I do that. Do you ever have you know, to, like, discount? If they if they bring out, like, a little, little extra dessert or something, you have to go, well, I'm not going to take that into account because, you know, that's just for me. Oh, not only not only that, but I don't I don't I don't pay for it. I mean, I pay for it too. Is the thing, which which has led to more than a few. Yeah, I mean, I pay for, I pay for absolutely everything, absolutely everything. Which 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 don't get me started on the whole influencer thing. We'll be we'll be spend another three hours talking about this. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no. And and I would and I would finally tell people, you know, once it started getting around, it's like, look, if there's something you want me to try, I want to try it. Just put it on the bill. Put it on the bill. Right. I'm paying for this one way or another. If I have to drop cash on the table as I walk out the door. I'm paying for this, right? <laughs> there was there was actually once I went what to a place where I, I got not a fight, but it's sort of this sort of this weird testy scene between me and the and the woman who was running the register, who the boss had told her not to let me pay, and I, we were going back and forth. And finally, after placing the order, I said, I, "You understand, I'm going to have to leave, right? I'm going to walk out without my food if you don't charge me." She said, "I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to charge." She said, "Okay," turned around, walked out the door, and uh, you know, oh well, the, I mean, you know. Fair play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it was it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't like mean or contentious or anything, but it was just like, no, I need you to understand. Yeah, yeah, this is my this is my boundary, my standard. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, let's come to your your fourth game then, Tom. Tell us about this. This is from 2016, so a more recent game. Oh, that'd be Firewatch. And I just, I freaking love Firewatch. And there's a little bit of background here too. And I, I should, I should state up front too that uh, uh, Jake Rodkin, who is you know half of the the duo along with Sean Vanneman, who started Camposanto, um, uh, uh, Jake's an Jake's an old buddy of mine, which which ties back to the Monkey <laughs> Island thing. And we can talk about this in a second too. I know him. We kind of flip flopped. I knew him from the original Monkey Island days because he was one of the fellows who was running uh, Mix and Mojo, which was a LucasArts fan site. Oh, really? No way. I didn't know that. You know, he was, <laughs> he was a little younger, but I was pretty, I mean, I was, I was 20 years old when we started recording. I was 19. I was cast. So he was a teenager. He was a few years younger. Didn't... And so he came out with the whole crowd for E3 for Mix and Mojo to do their press stuff. Right. And, and we decided to meet up at E3. The, I met this crowd in the hallways, this crowd of teenagers from all over the world who'd all kind of come together, you know, it's like, hey guys, how's it going? And it was this weird, awkward thing, you know, because they're meeting Guybrush Streetwood, <laughs> yeah. right? And I'm and I'm meeting this this crowd of <laughs> random teenagers from all around. They the must world. have thought you're so young. 
<laughs> what? We were all so young. This is the thing. All of us were yeah, so young. Yeah, but like you especially, like, because Guybrush, I don't know how old he's supposed to be in the game, but he's not 19, right? Oh, I mean, I kind of feel like in that first game, he seems like a teenager. Yeah, maybe he is, yeah. Maybe, I don't know, you know, back in those piratey days, it's like, you're already, you're already an old man at 22, <laughs> right? Isn't that how it works? Anyway, so, so I'm chatting with them, and we're having a nice time, and then, you know, it's kind of all right, time to break up, whatever, and they're, oh, what are you guys doing in LA? You haven't done any some other fun stuff, like, well, we're going to Disneyland tomorrow. I says, well, can I come? And they're like, you, you, you want to come? I'm like, yeah, let's go to Disneyland tomorrow. They're like, okay. So I went to Disneyland with them. And uh, then I invited him over to my house for pasta, and you know we just we just kind of hung out, and we and, and Jake and I in particular kept in touch over the years. And what's what what I love is that it's flip flop because like he was the he was like the dorky Monkey Island fan when I was working on Curse and Escape, mm-hmm. and now it's like totally reversed. I've been out of the business mostly for like a decade and a half now, and now he's like doing Camposanto, and now he's working for Valve, <laughs> and like I'm just like this mega fan of of, of his now. <laughs> Him and Sean, and which is the long way of getting back around to Firewatch because they put out Firewatch. You know, as a Camposanto, as their own little, their own little indie developer, and and I, these guys are just storytellers. You know, they're storytellers. Yeah, so tell us, tell us about the game. So you're, you, you are, a, as the as the name suggests, you're on the Firewatch for a uh, yeah. for a national park, aren't you? And the stories told you are via these cabins that you go, you occupy around the forest, don't you? And the stories sort of told at you. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's it's a fellow who, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get into spoilery territory, but you know, he's. Uh, having some life difficulties and he kind of, you know, runs away from it all for a little bit. And he takes a, a job, a summer job, uh, manning one of the, uh, uh, the fire towers in, uh, in a national park. And the whole thing is ex- both exploring the wilderness, which is beautiful. I mean, just stunningly in a stylized way, but just stunningly gorgeous to begin with. So, you know, again, immersion atmospherics, this has always been one of my primary things. And, and so much of the game takes place between him and the other lead character via walkie-talkie. Mm. And and so that's, you know, that's character, that's writing, that's voiceover. There is no, there's no other way around that. And the way they got those characters to just light up. I mean, we talk about, this is the kind of game where I wish Ebert were still alive. You know, I mean, I miss Ebert anyway. He's He was always a tremendous influence on me, both uh, in, in the food criticism, actually, interestingly. This is Ro- Roger Ebert, the film critic. Roger Ebert, who, you know, famously would always say the video games aren't art. You mm. know, he was a brilliant, wonderful man. I, I miss him all the time. He was so wrong about that, you know? And it's like, and this is the game that I always want to show him and say, now try and tell me that this isn't art. This I, Firewatch for me was, you know, there's always there's always drama. There are some video games with some fantastic drama and and that and that, you know, that that sock you right in the feels. But Firewatch for me just it just hit home in a way that felt so real. It, it hit home in a way, it, it, it carried a weight that for the first time to me felt on par with a brilliant feature film. I mean, I enjoy drama and good writing in games, but it's rare that I find them emotionally moving to the degree that a great film does. And, and Firewatch was the first one that just kind of for me at least, blew that out of the water. This it's just a, a gorgeous story and it's so well written and it's so perfectly acted. I I I I read for the lead in that. Jake was kind enough to ask me to 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 read and and it is maybe the only time I'm I'm of two minds. I am so pissed I didn't get it. But on the other hand, I'm so glad I didn't because that's one of those ones where you hear who they eventually cast, you're like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that you made the right choice. Right. You know? 
so so that to me you know it's like more more of that please more of that please the thing that keeps echoing in my head is i remember i was talking to jake once about you know my kid when he was younger was like a lot of kids like oh i really like my video games that'd be fun and he was really into coding and jake made the point he was like dude if you want to get into video games it's like don't be a coder it's like we got coders out the wazoo he's like you know we need writers we need storytellers we need artists we need you know people who have all those other skills it's like we don't <laughs> need coders and it, and it shows it shows in that mm-hmm. game you know i mean there's just such depth to it um it's it's mm-hmm. it's really tremendous yeah it's got beautiful speaking of the arts um ollie moss was was involved in the the art sign wasn't he for a lot of the posters and things like that it's just so beautiful beautifully presented incredible yeah 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 i'm very gracious totally. to um having not got that job to to go and you know, choose the game and to love it and to play it. So yeah, lovely. Oh, of course. No, of course. I mean, there's no and 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 of course. I, I'm I, this is horrible. I'm blanking on the name of the fellow who did, who did book it. But um, but uh, no, I mean, just yeah. just tremendous. I mean, he just did absolutely tremendous work. And I, I, you know, I did not deserve in any way to get that role. So well, we 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 happen to be talking at the well. I don't know if it's finished now, but the, the writer strike has been going on, and I know that's not it's not quite the same as the oh, as yeah. the video industry, but there has been a lot of talk about rights for for VO artists. I wanted to just ask you about that a little bit, really. Um, the big scandal was around Bayonetta 3 last year where the voice actor, oh, yeah. she asked for a bit more money or I'm not quite sure of the ins and outs of it, but but basically she ended up being replaced and it was a big hoo-ha, wasn't it? What's, uh, you know, what's your, what's your take? Do you think VO artists should be, should be better looked after? Has that been your experience? I believe there should be some form of residual structure. You know, I, I, I really do. I mean, it, I, I feel like, and I think anybody feels that way, you know, if you are a significant contributor to something that just goes gangbusters and go huge, you know, it would be, it would be nice to get more than a $500 session fee out of it. You know what I mean? Has that been your experience? Uh, do you, do you normally just get a one-off fee for the session? So you never oh, get absolutely. like royalties or residuals? Absolutely. Back end? No, I've, I've never gotten any back end of any kind. No. And for interactive, no residuals. No, there's residual structure for, you know, for, 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 for broadcast, for television, for, for radio, for all that other stuff. But there's never been any residual structure, um, at least not, not codified in the union contract. Right. There's never been any re- residual structure for interactive. That seems wrong. I, I agree. Okay. I agree. I think it's about time. I think it's time. There should be some residual structure. I mean, at least there should be something. There should be some acknowledgement that if this thing just goes nuts and sells, you know, millions and millions of copies, you know... Share the love a little bit, right? You know, I was reluctant with the whole, when the whole Bayonetta thing was happening too, I was very reluctant and I still am reluctant to say anything about it just because I don't like commenting on any situation where I don't know everything sure. that's going yeah, on. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we catch little bits and pieces here and there and I, I just, I'm not. No, I'm not asking you to, I'm just asking, I'm asking in the no, general, no, I, know. I suppose, or but from in, your own experience. Yeah, no, no, in the, in the, in the, in the general sense, I agree. And, and I do think it is super extremely lame when uh, a developer decides we're going to try to save a few bucks by recasting somebody. It's like, you know, I mean, I understand and it, and it makes a difference. It's like, you know, if it's some little indie, I know you got to save money. There's only so much you can do, right? I get that. Voiceover is expensive. You know, in, in the context of a AAA game, no, it's not much. In the context of a little indie developer's game, that's a lot of money. <laughs> you know, that's a lot of money for a small budget game. And I totally get that. But, uh, but you know, when you're talking about the, 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 the big boys and the big contract, it's like, you know, come on. There, there has to be, there has to be something in place. There really should be something in place. It's unfortunate. It is what it is. Yeah, I guess is you know. There's, there's the, there's the, the <laughs> Gen X catchphrase, right? Do you remember how much you got paid for the Curse of Monkey Island? 
Uh, Curse was pretty good, but uh, that was mostly because it was a lot. You know, I mean, those scripts are gargantuan. So I think I did, I don't know, maybe 24, 25, four-hour sessions to record all of that. Um, and I mean, I made just straight up scale, you know, I, I, I'm, I wasn't a celebrity. I wasn't any sort of known entity, <laughs> you know, so I made straight up scale, which I, at the time I think was about, I think I want to say it was like $500 for a four hour session. So, I mean, you know, you do the math, it ends up being a, a nice chunk of change, you know, but, but, but only because it was, I mean, it was a solid three weeks in the studio, <laughs> uh, you know, mornings and afternoons. Uh, and, and I don't want to, you know, again, I don't mean to sniff at it. It's like, you know, uh, in in some ways, you know, it 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 sounds, you know, it's you can't. It's hard to plead poverty when it, when you know you're talking about you know getting that amount of money for a short session, you know. I mean, and it's and it's and it's so great to be able to 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 make a living doing voiceover at all. And I was one of the few folks who I knew in L.A. who actually was. It was a it was a modest living, but I was I was paying the bills. I I don't feel like you, you don't need to apologize. <laughs> this is something that creative people often do, don't they? You know, and it is why sometimes sometimes. Um, you know, artists say if a character designer designs a very famous video game character and, and all they get is their salary for it and they've made this huge IP that gets then turned into films and stuff. And, you know, I think creative people aren't always the best at looking after their interests. Yeah. But Well, it's not unique to creative people either. I mean, I think that's that's true across <laughs> most industries, isn't it? You know, I mean, if you're, a, if you're a, you know, if you're a paid drone in some office building who comes up with some magical thing that saves hundreds of millions of dollars, guess who's getting those hundreds of millions of dollars? You know, I mean, it's not, uh, it's, it's not exactly, I think it's maybe more obvious in the creative industries, but it's uh, certainly oh, not unique true. to us. Right. On that note, why don't we come to your fifth and your final game, Tom? Tell us, tell us about this one. My last one is Half-Life Alex. I am one of the uh, fortunate ones who was able to play Half-Life Alex um, as it was meant to be played. And I say fortunate because, uh, you know, we uh, my my son was very, very into VR and we, you know, we, we put it together and, and he was really big into uh, into the index. You know, he's like, this is the one It's like, all right, let's do this. So so we got in the index and and when Alex came out, he played through it first. And then we uh, we did the whole setup in the living room. He put up the you know the sensors on these little posts, and uh, and I got it, the whole thing. And I and I had a little bit of experience with the first Oculus Quest at that point, but but again, you know, as someone I mentioned this before, as someone who is into immersion, <laughs> virtual reality is a big thing for you. I I mean I I don't, and I feel like you know I know there are a lot of people who have tried like an Oculus. Mm. And they're like, oh, I get it. I've played, I've done VR. I've been on a quest or whatever. And it's like, no, no, you don't, you don't understand. I don't, I don't know that I could describe to you how, I mean, there are, there are moments. I think everyone has those moments in their lives where every once in a while you try out some piece of technology, some rare piece of technology that for a brief moment makes you feel like you are living in the future. Right. And that was one of those moments for me. It's like this is future technology that, you know, was sent back in time to us. I mean, it is just for me the the appeal was twofold. The first 
was that it is just a tremendous game. And it is so well designed and, the, and these moments and the way they're scripted and how they they were so smart about taking advantage without... Oh, I, I, don't want, I don't want to spoil anything. You don't want any spoilers. This is a, a mild spoiler for one moment and a half like Alex too. Guys, hum for about the next 30 seconds. There was a moment where you would open up this cupboard and a wine bottle or a beer bottle would tip over and start rolling out and you had just enough time to <laughs> reach out and catch it before it fell and alerted all of the uglies to your presence. <laughs> and the, and it, like that, that moment for me was like, I was there. I did it with my whole body and it was designed in such a smart way to give you that moment of, ah, I got to catch this before it hits. And I caught it at my knees, you know, <laughs> as it fell out of this. Uh, and it was just so freaking brilliant. So many details like that. So the game itself was tremendous like that. And I would stress again, if you have any opportunity to do this, make it happen. You can only, we we should say you can only play it in virtual reality, can't you? And you need, yeah. You can only play it VR. You can only play it, I believe you can only <clears> play it on the index. I could be wrong, but I think it's only on the index. I don't think you can do it on any of the other headsets. I mean, for me, it was worth the price. Of <laughs> I mean, just for, just for that, just for the experience. So there was the game itself, which is amazing. Then beyond that, the way that game got my brain freaking out, because to bring this full circle then, I started thinking, you know, there are some scenes in that game where you are interacting with other characters and you're standing there right in front of them and you're talking to them and, you know, you're doing stuff with them. And it is so real and it is so right there. And I thought, I started thinking to myself, oh my God, what would an old school adventure game be like with this kind of technology where, you know, like a game like Monkey Island where you can actually, you're in Melee Island. And, and when you're talking to the pirates, they're right there in front of you, you know? And, and to me, the potential for this is just absolutely mind-blowing i mean the way again you talk about dramatic weight and you talk about how how you can connect with characters and feel immersed and feel like you're experiencing something it's beyond spatial it's just i think the way as people we react when there's another face that's three feet in front of us you know that's moving real and i i just found it tremendously Mm. moving that way and and I and I just keep I keep dreaming of a VR game of that quality that is like an adventure game, a brilliantly scripted, acted adventure game in high end VR space like that. That to me is like that's the holy grail that I imagine in the future. And I don't know if it will ever happen <laughs> because because like the part the, the biggest barriers and some of these were explained to me by Jake. The biggest barriers are one that the equipment is very expensive. So only so many people are going to be able to play this thing to begin with, unless the costs come way, way down, which hopefully they will. But the second thing is, you know, as it's been explained to me by a number of people, you know, I talk about those incredible interactive scenes with the other characters. They're like, yeah, that was probably half the budget, (laughs) you know, seven or eight minutes of interactive scenes with those other characters. (laughs) And it's like, oh, yeah, I can see how that might be problematic if you wanted to do a whole adventure game that way. So, so you know, I don't know if it's even practical, but maybe, maybe someday. I don't know how, but that's that's kind of my dream yeah. for video gaming. Maybe like a short, like you get in films, you could get a, a short VR g- game if you see what I mean. That's you know very well acted, but only lasts maybe, twenty yeah, minutes or something. Yeah, so. yeah. Then you just have to convince people to pay sixty bucks for a short. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem for for a demo essentially, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm on board. Let's be clear. I have I have seen this. I have I have seen the future, and I am on board. 
And if that's what it costs, I'm in. But but I totally understand how that uh, might, might be a little rough for some. So, All right, Dom, let's take a look at your console then. So we have got the Secret of Monkey Island brackets on Sega CD. Yes. We've got Thief 2, The Dark Project. Guitar Hero 2. Was it the second one? Yeah. Sure. We'll say Guitar Hero. Okay. Sure, we'll go with Guitar Hero right. 2. Yes, That's the Guitar one Hero that you, you were crowned prince of, so let's stick with that. I was. Uh, uh-huh. And then we go Firewatch and lastly Half-Life Alex. Uh wonderful. So you get yeah, there's gonna be you're gonna have to have quite a few capabilities on that console, aren't we? V- VR ready. We're gonna have to have um yeah, I know. Yeah, a guitar Sorry, engineers. but it's gonna work, I know. <laughs> um and then we need a we need a name for it, Tom. Have you thought about what we could call this to market it? I have thought a little bit about it. I think we're gonna go with the Super Femidom. <laughs> yes. That's what we're gonna go with. I thought briefly about the 3DOM, but I think we'll stick with the Super yeah, Femidom. Yeah, 3DOM sounds like uh, sounds like it's an item for a different <laughs> industry. Ooh, I never thought about that. Good point. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Super Femidom. All right, just before, thank you so much. For no, this no problem at all. Wonderful. So, Joe, before I let you go, yes, I imagine you get you get asked probably a lot about, um, uh, you know, giving advice to young VO actors. So, I think I'll take a different different approach. For okay, this. what do you what do you think makes a good restaurant critic? I think nowadays a good restaurant critic is someone who can get out of the food service ambiance headspace and talk about context right i think the thing about being a food critic nowadays is that we have no shortage of opinions you don't need more opinions my opinion is not what's most helpful what i have is i have experience and i have more knowledge um, than the average diner and i think a good dining critic nowadays has to be able to think of themselves more as educators less as critics more as educators that's your role now your role is to take whatever the level of discourse is wherever you live and to try to help people understand a little more elevate the conversation a little more bit by bit by bit and that's how you both help people find greater joy in greater restaurants to go to and also you help people who do great work in restaurants and who are running fabulous restaurants get the recognition in the business they deserve. That's how it happens. Mm. What a wonderful answer. That was brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, Dom, it's been so great to meet you. And thank you for all your work over the years. I know it's very hugely appreciated. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to my guest, Dominic Aramato. What a wonderful time that was. I had not spoken to Dom before, but he is a nice chap, isn't he? And uh, just loved hearing his stories. And what a great scene, him turning up as a young person to his agent's office in Los Angeles, being handed the read-through for this role of Guybrush Threepwood, him freaking out because it's a game series he loves and then of course getting down to the last two and finally 
being cast as the voice of Guybrush, who we know him as in all of those games that have turned up subsequently. Uh, a dream come true for the young Dom, and uh, we all benefited as well, because uh, I can't imagine anyone else better embodying the character of Guybrush. Uh, that was wonderful. Um, on a, a quick point of admin, so when Dom was talking about um, Firewatch, the game by, by the friends that he made, Jake Rockin and Sean Vanaman and all the rest of the team uh, who he became friends with while making Monkey Island, he was talking about Firewatch and he could not recall the name of the voice actor who plays the lead, uh, the role that Dom lost out on. Uh, that is, of course, Rich Summer, the fine American a comedic actor, perhaps best known for playing the role of Harry Crane in the Mad Men Prestige TV series. It's a very fine performance in Firewatch. If you've not played the game, you should absolutely go and do that. A classic, uh, a classic modern independent game, Firewatch is, and, and well worth your time. And Rich elevates that as well as as Dom was was saying. You can follow uh, Dom on Twitter. His handle is at SkilletDo, so that's Skillet as in the pan, S-K-I-L-L-E-T-D-O-U-X, SkilletDo. Uh, and uh, there's also, you know, links on his Twitter to other things like his Instagram, which I think is the same, and uh, you can follow along on Dom's work there, writing about games and then also his work as a food critic. Speaking of which, I absolutely loved hearing all about Dom's work as a food or as a dining critic, as he calls himself, loved hearing his perspective and his um, philosophy, I guess, of what uh, what he hopes to bring to readers uh, of, of his pieces in the Phoenix New Times right now in Arizona. Um, yeah, and the role that a food critic can have in the contemporary landscape, not just sort of saying this food is worth your, your money or... The ambiance is nice, but also adding a bit of cultural history and context to the things that uh, you're eating. Wonderful stuff. Loved hearing all of that. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons. Uh, so supporters of the podcast via Patreon in the last few weeks since we launched at the end of June. It's been wonderful to see, to see that really encouraging and uh, it does help keep the podcast uh, sustainable into the future and helps me to grow it if you don't know what i'm talking about then head along to patreon.com forward slash my perfect console for just five dollars a month you can become a supporter you get so many benefits for that so uh, a monthly reveal of all the guests we've got coming up uh, the chance to ask some questions to select guests uh, bonus episodes in which i put some of those questions to the guests you also get your episodes early and ad-free and you get access to the lounge feature on the Patreon app, which is a new feature that Patreon has is trialling with My Perfect Console, one of the few um, Patreon outlets that uh, is getting to sort of test that feature out. So, yeah, come along, get involved. There's a nice community building there. Uh, it would be lovely to have you. You can write to me if you don't want to do all of that at myperfectconsole at gmail.com with your thoughts, your feedback, your suggestions. If you do get a moment, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or tap the star rating on Spotify. However it is that you access uh, access this. Um, yeah, so some great guests coming up through the rest of the summer and then 
We'll be doing a big push again in September with some big stars we've got coming up. So you can look forward to uh, some absolute industry legends uh, that I've recorded with. I'm very excited to share those episodes with you. Newsworthy, perhaps a couple of them. Let's see. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's about all from me, I think. I will be back again next week with one more guest, their five games, and another perfect console. Till then, have a great week. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly, with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code AnyStyle24. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.